0: Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show, everybody. Today is Friday, November twenty fourth, twenty seventeen. Uh, happy Thanksgiving, and my name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have Doug and Elliot, Erica, Gabby, and Tiffany. Full crew today. Everybody, nope. no, no, yeah. almost, almost. We're we're missing Gabby. Man, <laughs> I'm not on the ball, off the ball. <laughs>
1: Maybe your brain is potholed.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, today we are going to talk about potholed brains, uh, even more precisely evil brains. Uh, So, uh, and even more precisely, the connection between biology and crime. Uh, This is kind of an interesting uh, topic. Um, Now, a lot of our listeners uh, may be and probably are aware of uh, psychopathy and the study of psychopathy. Uh, That's a big part of what we're going to talk about. Uh, but the overarching concept is uh, that there is a biological aspect to crime and to criminal impulses, uh, not necessarily a sociological aspect. So we're looking at, like, the way the brain works and, you know, what kind of impulse it causes or doesn't cause. So the interesting part of this is the – that concept, you know, the social construct around crime. What is crime? Because there are certain things that are on the books as laws that would be technically mm. a crime, uh, but you know, many of us would agree that they should not be criminalized. Mm. Um, so yeah, where does this notion of crime come from? And uh, I, I guess, uh, what do you guys think? We're we talking about criminal psychopathy as opposed to what? <laughs> vanilla psychopathy.
2: It's kind of uh... Kind of tricky because, yeah, it's like, I mean, crimes are like actually a social construct. So it's not like things that the SJWs will always tell you are social constructs. It's like crime, you know, you can't really, laws are a social construction. So it's something that we just kind of make up because it's kind of like, well, I mean, it's good. You know, there are certain things that need to be laid down as guidelines. And if you do, if you go against those, then there should be some kind of repercussion to discourage that sort of behavior. But then, when you're talking about the biology of crime, you know these biological factors aren't social constructions mm-hmm. as much as the SDAWs would like to tell you that they are, and it's kind of like you know where where do those two things meet?
1: I think that for me, a crime is taking something from someone without their permission, whether mm-hmm. it be food, sex, their life, (laughs) things like that, or doing something to someone that they don't want you to do to them.
0: Mm. Yeah. Right. I've heard that described in kind of like the libertarian viewpoint as uh, theft is the underlying issue or problem Mm. because even murder is like the ultimate theft of someone's life. Mm Mm-hmm. But that ultimately, the, the issue with any kind of – because that's what they say when you talk about anarchy, not like the upheaval of everything kind of anarchy, but like the idea that uh, people could be autonomous, um, how much government is necessary, all that kind of thing. It comes down to, uh, well, how do you deal with issues like crime? And then that's one of the things that's generally proposed to the best of my understanding is that you use theft as the basis for judgment of a crime.
1: Hmm. Yeah, uh Adrian Rain said that also in Anatomy of Violence. He says most crimes are a way to take resources from other people and it's a profitable uh endeavor for a small subset of society.
3: Mm-hmm. So that whole yeah. concept of neurocriminology, that's the so that's the study of the biological roots of criminal behavior. Mhm. Yeah.
0: Yo, yeah, well, that's a large uh, aspect of like behavioral analysis too, right? I mean, a lot of that is uh, sociological <clears throat> excuse me, so- sociological constructions about what is and is not appropriate behavior. But like, for instance, what the FBI seeks to do with behavioral analysis is create these profiles that allows them to more effectively track people down serial killers uh, and things like that. And that is They, you know, they dabble in and understand very well, at least from what, from what I understand, psychopathy and how it manifests, you know? Um, So it's an interesting thing. I I think when we're talking about what is crime that, yeah, it comes down to uh, violent crime, not just like physical violence, but again, theft is a form of violence. So what causes a propensity in people to do this aside from the obvious, desperation i think everybody understands that a hungry person would steal an apple you know and that so you have that but it's I a little bit steal different an
1: apple i'd steal a side of beef
0: wow as much as i can carry therapy.
2: yeah <laughs> <laughs> i think you need a van <laughs>
0: So I guess it, I had mentioned at the beginning that, you know, most of our listeners are probably aware of the study of psychopathy, but just to break down what we're talking about, you know, the the concept of what would cause someone to take pleasure in someone else's suffering. And mm-hmm. what we're talking about is, this like, I guess you call it a condition or an existence, the type of, uh, you know, person, uh, however you want to define personhood um, who lacks the, mechanism for empathy completely lacks it you can't turn it on because it's not there so that cascade that that basic principle cascades into a lot of other areas of life as you might imagine because a lot of what we do is fueled by uh how we treat others and are accepted into and uh, work within a community
1: yeah um, and you um, don't necessarily have to be a psychopath to engage in criminal behavior
0: right yeah yeah yeah
2: it's interesting, actually. Um, Tiffy brought up uh, Adrian Rain, and he actually brings up a very, like, very fascinating topic where he's talking about kind of the evolutionary basis for crime, and <clears throat> what he basically talks—he cites uh, Dawkins' work on selfish genes, and that's basically the idea that, you know, we're ba- we're just kind of machines that um, further the goals of our genes, which is essentially just to reproduce and get our kind of genetics out there into um, the, the world. And that a lot of, it's, it's pretty amazing when he's talking about how many different things can kind of be explained by this concept that, you know, all these kind of crimes where you don't really think, you know, you're, you're kind of baffled by them. Like he brings up uh, different ones, like, like uh, why mothers will um, sometimes kill their babies and you know why it's more likely that um, a person will be born or sorry a person will be killed on the day of their birth like 100 times more likely than on any other day and he talks about um, the you know the 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 crime where like a, a, a husband rapes his wife and he kind of really kind of picks these things apart and and shows how they can kind of be explained by this idea that You know, it's kind of the drive behind this is actually just to kind of spread your genes, which is something that obviously goes on on kind of an unconscious level.
1: Can we get into that whole thing about ladies, mothers killing their babies? Because I thought that was just so bizarre. He said they're 18 times more likely to kill the baby on the first day of the baby's life than at any other day. And he said that they were mostly unwanted children, unplanned, and not born in a hospital. So, we've all heard stories about a young mother like giving birth in a toilet stall or something, or putting her baby in a garbage yeah. dumpster the first day that it's born. And I was always so perplexed by that. Like, I yeah. consider, like he said in the book, like one of the reasons, and looking at the selfish gene perspective, is. If you're going to kill your baby, you might as well do it before you invest a bunch of time and energy and resources into that baby. Yeah. But in my view, nine months is an investment. You carried the baby <laughs> for nine months, and then as soon as the baby comes out, you're going to get rid of it.
3: Yeah. But I think Data a- even do that.
1: Yeah, but I guess carrying a baby doesn't really take much effort. I mean, anybody, a lot of people can do it and lots of people have done it. So maybe (laughs) people don't really consider that an investment. Maybe that's part of the whole unwanted and unplanned thing about it.
0: Yeah. Well, I think there's an issue here with doing like an academic analysis of a situation like this where, you know, obviously a person who would do that is not operating at full capacity. They're not thinking clearly. So we're trying to apply you know, logic to that, where that person who kills their child may not be a psychopath, they may be, you know, legitimately mentally ill, or they may have had an extreme circumstance that caused some kind of a psychotic break. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. there a whole any number of things can happen. But I think you would have to address it from that point, you have to address it from like, or discuss it from the point of what went wrong to lead to that not necessarily like what I guess it is the same question is how could it happen? But applying normal thinking to it is, I think doesn't work.
2: Well, yeah, because I mean, you you can't think that these, these women would be like, um, you know, Oh, I think that I'm going to kill my baby because, you know, I'm still young and I have the potential to get another mate and I don't have much going for me right now. So I can't really um, further my genetics into this world. So I may as well start over. Like, I'm sure there's some kind of narrative there that they kind of are running, but it's kind of like the impulse might actually be coming from this more genetic basis. Mm -hmm. So yeah, they might be crazy too. I mean, that's a possibility. (laughs) Or also just the the
3: whole hormonal thing that happens after pregnancy and just not even being aware of how that hormonal chemical, like you said, Doug, that biology just completely takes over. Mm Mm-hmm.
2: But actually, for Rain, addresses that. Rain actually addresses that, and he says that um, that would, although that does certainly explain um, the incidence of mothers killing their babies, mm-hmm. apparently it's pretty common for fathers as well.
4: Mm-hmm. And,
2: you know, yeah. they're not, they don't have any kind of post-pregnancy kind of thing going on, right? Their hormones aren't all jacked. They kind of, uh, you know, they're, they're the same as they were before the baby was born from a biological perspective. So it's kind of like, well, how do you explain that then? Maybe it's, yeah, it's-
1: you have to factor in the scarcity in the environment because a lot mm-hmm. of these murders, not to say that rich people don't kill their babies too, but a lot of these murders happen in the lower classes where poverty is rife and there just isn't enough to go around.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of like the from a kind of very cold perspective, it's kind of like if a woman is giving birth and the father has, you know, left the picture mm-hmm. um, and she doesn't have kind of the resources she needs to raise that child and actually have a successful transferring of her genes into the next generation, then it's kind of like, well, I could, you know, put all kinds of energy into this raising this kid Having a kid is, uh, you know, a, a serious detriment to actually actually attracting another mate um, that, you know, the, the male is generally the provider and uh, the protector. So it's like being a single mom is a pretty serious detriment. So it's kind of like, well, I can kind of try and make it by or uh, I can get rid of this kid and, and try my chances with the next guy who comes along. And like I say, that's a cold kind of perspective. But if, if, you know, if you're taking kind of our own sort of empathy out of the picture and it's just going from these biological drives, it kind of makes sense. I mean, Rain brings up, uh, there's a, a type of bird um, where the parents kind of work cooperatively to, to raise the kids. And, uh, and apparently if the father dies, the mother will actually abandon the nest because it just doesn't it doesn't make sense for her to try and do that on her own, mm-hmm. um so she has a better chance of actually getting her genetics on into the world by finding another mate and starting over so it's like there's a there's a precedent for it kind of in the animal world yeah
0: hmm. <clears throat> I wonder um I'm losing my train of thought here. Uh, just thinking about the biological aspect of this, like the evolutionary uh, biology, mm-hmm. and what causes people to get to this point. Um, one thing I think that makes it very interesting and like kind of dangerous, quote unquote, tentative ground to discuss is that assigning like a genetic basis for social behavior and that crossover where that happens, uh, I guess long story short, it could be misused, right? You can, mm-hmm. <clears throat> you can easily once, once you start seeing it and without some level of discernment, start labeling people psychopaths uh, in your mm-hmm. life when they may not be. And that's mm-hmm. like what, when I think one of the things that the hair talked a lot about was like, you, c- you can't, nor should you try to actually diagnose this condition because even the experts have a really hard time with it. So I'm curious about, like, um, you know, in talking about the quote-unquote evil genes, what do you guys think about that uh, possibility that it could be taken out of hand as well?
1: Mm. I don't know, because I kind of lean towards the fact that it's not given enough weight.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Like some people, like there was a story that uh, Rain talked about in the book where there, I think he, this guy was adopted and allegedly he had a fairly normal upbringing, good parents, uh, but he just went on to commit all these crimes. I think he murdered a couple people and mm. he was always in and out of prison and he found out later in his life that his biological father was a prisoner and was, he had killed a couple people too and he was in prison. So I think maybe it falls on a spectrum, like for some people, maybe genes explain a lot more than we give it credit for and then for other people, they are on the other end where they may have some awful uh, genetic inheritance, but they're still able to overcome their genes through having a good environment
2: yeah sure yeah i think it's 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 really interesting actually because i mean one way you can look at this is kind of like we're all just complete prisoners of our genetic roulette you know like everything is you know determined genetically and you know, you, if, you, if your father was a career criminal, then you're going to be a career criminal too. I mean, the same thing could be looked at from diseases as well, right? You know, oh, my mother had breast cancer. Therefore, my chances of breast cancer are really, really high and I'm going to get breast cancer. It's and like, addiction but, too. and addiction. Yeah, no, there's all kinds of different things that, that the, there is a genetic basis for. And it kind of like, yeah, it, it's kind of, it brings in up the, the idea of epigenetics as well, I think. And the idea that, just because you've got the genes present doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be expressed. Mm -hmm. And what causes a gene to be expressed or not has more to do with the environment. Now, this example of the guy who was adopted and, and still went on you know, had a good family and all that kind of stuff, had a good environment, you could say, and then kind of goes on to be a criminal anyway. It's like, well, I don't don't really know what's going on there. Like that's, that's kind of crazy. Mm -hmm. But, um, I think, uh, yeah i mean we couldn't we couldn't come up with like a genetic test um i don't think anyway for psychopathy and and suddenly every single person who carries those genes you know has to be shipped off to an island or something like that because i i think that it really has to do more with whether or not the gene is being expressed or not yeah yeah i agree i
0: guess well, <clears> oh, <throat> I guess just my my concern in bringing that up was the uh, like the boogeyman thing, you know, in creating another boogeyman. Because I agree, Tiff, with what you said that it's an extremely important issue. It probably do- well, it certainly doesn't get enough uh, attention as being one of the major problems uh, in our culture these days. The existence of psychopathy and the understanding of it. Um, mm-hmm. My concern is that it'll like. You know, if it were to catch on and get more attention, which is what we want, but that people would then use it to create a new boogeyman, you know, Mm -hmm. and it'd be used to point fingers and stuff like that. It may be inevitable. I don't know. Mm -hmm.
3: Well, Sandra Brown kind of talks about that, too. Um, The woman who wrote Women Who Love Psychopaths and How to Spot a Dangerous Man and how she she's basically said it's like the number one health risk that's not addressed, Mm -hmm. that there should be, you know, um, public pathology education, where at least people have a really, you know, small idea, Mm -hmm. at least, of what you're dealing with, because, as we know, it's almost contagious.
1: Yeah, I think these days, a lot of it is falling onto the socialization aspect, like there's the whole gender is a social construct thing, and all this uh, embracing of one's victimhood—like if you are black and you grew up in the hood—it excuses all kinds of uh, poor behavior. But uh, I kind of lost where I was trying to go with this. I, I don't think that—I don't think that we're at any kind of risk. Maybe just in my opinion, that genes are going to be blamed for everything. I think of anything, it's going to be socialization that's going to be blamed for everything. <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. kind of the way it is right now. It's, mm-hmm. It seems like every time anybody is like a, a criminal of some kind, like a racist, not racist, or like a rapist, or <laughs> like, you know, all, all these different things often seem to be like, you know, the, the, the upbringing kind of gets pulled out. It's like, well, you know, they were abused as a child. Or, you know, they had this difficulty in their childhood. And people really want to kind of use these um, environmental factors as a, an excuse for um, this kind of behavior. And I think that it's just kind of starting now where the biological aspect of it is kind of coming into play. Where but then again, like, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: then again, then again, I'm talking about in today's environment or milieu, mm-hmm. uh if you're talking about men and their toxic masculinity from the radical <laughs> feminist point of view, they would say that all men are born rapists and born abusers. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of this weird schizophrenic black and white thinking, depending on who is uh, putting the theory forth, I guess. Yes. Yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah. Very true.
1: Well, and
3: Sandra Brown talked about that, too, about how that's how psychopaths essentially find their victims for, in women is that the the first story is always a, a, a sad story that elicits empathy.
1: A pity hook.
3: A pity hook. Yeah. Mm. Which may or may not be true.
0: Right. Well, that's the thing with psychopathy, right? They lack empathy, but it's not like they don't understand it, at least the intelligent ones. And I think that it's important to understand the distinction between the kind of like brute psychopath, like the mountain from Game of Thrones, you know, who just like Mm -hmm. ravages the battlefield, like that kind of monster versus uh, someone who's very intelligent and can like kind of play chess with their malintentions. Um,
2: like Littlefinger
0: Yeah sassy <laughs> <Well, Cersei. laughs> yeah. So Yeah So that the they uh, that So that my point being While while lacking the impulse for, for Empathy or the ability to feel it uh, They understand it and they understand How to manipulate it they Yeah they know that as,
1: other people have it
0: <laughs> Yeah they, people have this weird thing that stops them From doing stuff You know apparently I can use that I think it's just kind of the way it goes
3: Mm. Mm. well it's like uh, Doug mentioned earlier in that uh, the selfish gene the idea that uh, you know basically a small percent of what did he call them cheats mm-hmm. survive mm-hmm. in an altruistic society because they essentially go undetected
4: mm-hmm.
3: and cheats yeah. lose out when there's other cheats
0: there's right. it has to be a small enough percentage yeah
2: Yeah. it's interesting because he kind of says that it's like it is actually a viable strategy for Mm -hmm. genetics you know to to propagate you know on the one hand it makes sense for you to be more altruistic because in a group setting you know your chances of survival go up and uh you know if you're cooperating with other people then you know being against the elements or you know, neighboring tribes or whatever, you have more of a chance. You know, it's like everybody's cooperating to get food and resources, all that kind of stuff. Then, yeah, that makes sense. But it seems like there is this other strategy where it's a kind of like completely self centered, I'm only out for myself kind of strategy. And that they can kind of benefit from being in an altruistic society by cheating, you know, mm-hmm. and especially if they can do it undetected by, you know, taking more than their share or, um, screwing over other people um, you know it is actually a way that they can kind of you know if you think about it, in an altruistic society you know most couples are kind of monogamous and they have a family and they raise children together cooperatively and that's their strategy for getting their kind of um, genetics out there well a guy who cheats who kind of just goes out there and spreads his seed far and wide and doesn't stick around to take care of the kids and just like lets it go out there um, you know, that's actually kind of a viable strategy if you're just looking at it from that kind of genetic point of view of getting your genes out there. So right. it's kind of like there can't be a lot of cheats, but it's, uh, you know, in a small percentage, it seems like it is actually a viable strategy. So it kind of maybe explains why we can see this in a small percentage. You know, I think the n- number of kind of psychopaths that exist in any given society is from anywhere from like one to 5%. Mm -hmm. According to the experts
0: So do you think If you boil it down That 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 percentage of the population Exists because it can You know like roll us mm -hmm. forward another 500,000 years and there's a Completely new society do you think it would Just come up again just because that's Part of the equation
1: I do think it's part of the equation I think that's probably one of the Lessons that People are put on this earth for That's just It just comes as part of the lesson plan, I think. It's part of being on Earth, and that's something that we have to learn. And that's probably why we have such a hard time telling, you know, who is a psychopath and who isn't. I think that they're supposed to be here for some reason. Maybe, like, from a genetic evolution standpoint, that their genes just really have. As much as a viable right to be here As anybody else's genes <laughs> <laughs> And well, they, Adrian, they Adrian there. Rain brought up A good uh, point in his book Where he was talking about How uh, In rapes There is a higher percentage Of pregnancies Versus consensual sex Mm -hmm. And he said that he thought it was because not that the rapists are going around thinking, oh, this lady looks really fertile. Let me go and get her. But maybe (laughs) genetically their genes are thinking, oh, this lady looks really fertile. Let me go and get her so I can propagate my genes some
2: more. Sure. Yeah. I mean, he might just be thinking that woman looks attractive. But it's kind of like what's driving that might be. It's like fertile, fertile. Mm
0: -hmm. Go get her. Uh, what do you guys think about the? no I I I feel like I know the answer to this question, but just to bring it up for discussion fuel, the idea that psychopathy uh, is a um, uh, malleable, changeable, like can you know can it be cured? Essentially, no, no. Yeah, I, <laughs> I mean that's the consensus, right? Too among like mm-hmm. psychiatrists and, and researchers as well that it's basically well, a. a uh,
1: Some of them seem to think that it can be though. Yeah
2: yeah and in fact, a lot of the articles we read for this it actually like would would say, you know we did this study and we found out that psychopaths' brains are different in this way, so that's going to lead to tr- treatment modalities.
4: Uh-huh. you
2: know it's kind of like they have this idea that you know if they figure it out, then it can be cured. but I don't know. If you're talking about actual biological differences, it kind of I think I think that's that's a a, a tricky one.
1: Or Maybe we should say that true psychopathology, like if there was really a 100% surefire way to diagnose somebody as a psychopath, then no, they cannot be cured. But psychopathic behavior or antisocial behavior in somebody Mm -hmm. who is not a genetic psychopath cannot be cured.
4: Or can be.
1: Why not? (laughs) It's going (laughs) to take a lot of work and... Mm -hmm maybe the person wouldn't be up for it. It's going to take a lot of work on their part, not just on the part of other people and the helping professions. But Mm -hmm. then again, if you, you know, at the end of the day, whether the person is a genetic psychopath or they just act like a psychopath, it's still the same effect. And people need to stay away from that person.
2: Yeah. 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 But I mean, that brings in the whole issue of actually having to be able to determine whether the the person is is actually genetically different you know like Mm -hmm. broken i guess you could say or if they they actually you know early um environmental um exposure in some way kind of created them Mm -hmm. and i think in, in those kinds of situations that it might be that you know serious therapy could turn it around i remember seeing a video And I don't know if this will be a very good story because I don't remember a lot about it, but it was basically a little girl who was in kind of an abusive um, situation, was actually taking it out on her brother and Mm. doing these just absolutely awful things to her brother and, you know, psychopathic kind of things. But because it was kind of caught early and they were actually able to to help her and kind of um, therapeutically kind of deal with it, she did have a turnaround where she was actually quite empathetic and like actually protective of her brother after, after all was said and done. So I think it is possible.
0: Well, and that could be a case too, where maybe she wasn't a, you know, just use the term genetic psychopath or sociopath, you know, and she was just battered to the point where that impulse was kind of beaten out of her.
1: Mm -hmm. One of our chatter says, if it's developmental, and caught early, maybe they might be able to treat, treat it. I agree with that because certain behaviors or ways of thinking can become hardwired in your brain after a while. And there's all these periods during childhood where uh, children are open to certain impressions or certain influences. And if they pass that window, there's kind of no going back. But this would require, like, some very smart parents who had, you know, like a network behind them that was able to identify. They have to be really looking at their child and know what they were seeing in order to catch these things before they could, you know, blossom into a turd, (laughs) turd blossom. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
0: Well, and that's, <clears throat> that's the, the slippery ground, right, with uh, determining, like, any any kind of time that you you determine the chance of somebody committing deviant behavior when they haven't yet. If they have yet, obviously, much easier than you have evidence. But trying to determine that ahead of time, I think, is slippery ground. And uh, I don't think that you can just test all the psychopaths and, and throw them, you know, into Oklahoma with a fence. Around
4: the state. Why Oklahoma? Because it's flat. It just came out. (laughs) out.
0: Sorry, Oklahoma.
4: You've always hated Oklahoma.
1: (laughs) But there Uh, have been studies where they try to identify um, certain behaviors that will kind of give a clue as to who will grow up to be a criminal and who won't. And there was one interesting article that came out or that we put up on site not too long ago. And it was uh, like in a classroom setting and they looked at young boys and they found that the ones who were less likely to join in on laughter with their peers were more likely to engage in antisocial acts. Uh I guess they can't empathize enough with other people to even find things funny, I guess.
0: Sure could be. Yeah. yeah.
2: I guess, I mean, they talk a lot about psychopaths and how they will watch normal people and observe
4: mm-hmm. and
2: then go home in the mirror and kind of try to mimic their emotional reactions. So it might just be that they're young and they kind of don't, They maybe they never have the potential to get the joke, you know? Uh-huh. But um, at that point, they don't even know enough how to fake it.
1: Yeah. I don't know well there's other studies that they've done too and they were studying the temperament of young toddlers and they found that uh, kids who show less fear and less inhibition and seek out uh, stimuli or are more sociable by the age of three have Mm -hmm. a higher uh, propensity of becoming a criminal or Engaging in certain acts Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah
1: So maybe that's something that parents should look for Like if your kid doesn't want to join in on laughter Or they always climb the highest tree In the neighborhood and don't care about falling
2: (laughs) Yeah (laughs) Then what do you do? (laughs) Train them in for a new one?
1: before the first birthday before you invest in <laughs> exactly. any more research,
2: research
0: invest that <laughs> yeah well that's a i think that's a big issue right i've <clears throat> i've known and and do know a few people obviously nameless who have what you might call problem children right they're either like just precocious and kind of little assholes or like in some cases <laughs> they really are kind of scary uh, but you know, whether or not you want to say that somebody who's actually a, like an essential psychopath could be classified as human or not, because they're more like, like, uh, purely predatory, uh, you're in that case, you're a parent, you have a child, you're dealing with a human being and that, you know, <clears throat> you can't just, uh, kick them to the curb. And what I see in the difficulty, and that is the cognitive dissonance between, this is my child and I love them, but something is drastically wrong here. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, and no crimes have been committed. No animals have been killed. You know, anything like that. It's just like, you can see that. I don't know. Mm
4: -hmm. uh,
0: In Mm -hmm. just normal interactions, you can see that certain aspects are missing. But yeah. A good movie to watch
1: is a movie starring, I think it's Tilda Swinton, but it's called, we need to talk about Kevin. Yeah. Did anybody see that?
0: That was a scary movie. No.
1: Yeah, it's yeah. Um, but it's kind of like what you said. I mean, he did do some weird things, and his mother noticed that he just kind of didn't have any feelings. But it wasn't until he was older, like high school age, she just went and just shot up a bunch of people in the school. Mm. But she always had her doubts about him, and their relationship was very strained. So that's a good movie to watch if anybody wants to see the evolution of a child psychopath. <laughs> Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) interesting
0: I think a lot in a lot of places uh, and again this is just from my own experience but a lot of people that do have an innate understanding of psychopathy don't necessarily have an understanding of like the terms like the psychiatric vocabulary around it Mm -hmm. but they understand it because they've had somebody in their family or in the circle of people they knew who acted that way uh, and you know had damaged their life in some way, so they have this intimate understanding of it, and mm-hmm. they can almost point that behavior out more effectively than somebody who's like an academic
2: mm-hmm. yeah, more of a visceral understanding,
0: yeah well I think with
1: Russians. that visceral understanding has to come the knowledge that don't don't dare try and fix them. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Right. Yeah. Because yeah. I
1: know She's some mom. people who like someone in my family will call these type of people reprobates, yet she continuously gets involved with these people knowing the kind of person that they are and like looking back on her own history.
0: Yeah, or like scoundrels, right? Yeah. I, I, just kind of a just kind of a scoundrel.
1: Mm-hmm. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. So what are some of these brain differences? Like if we were to look at it purely from a structural standpoint or even before we get into the brain uh, differences, uh, one thing, another thing that Adrian Rain talked about in his book was his uh, experience where he was staying in a hotel in Turkey, I think it was, and he got robbed. Like his first reaction was to jump up out of bed and confront this guy, which he did, but he ended up getting cut. He got his throat cut but not so much that he died. But he said that he could see the guy who robbed him like the light moonlight was coming in through the window. And he recognized the guy because they caught a bunch of guys in the hotel lobby later after the incident. And he said that the guy had a very distinctive look about him. Like he was mm. like squat and sturdy. And people have tried to Link certain uh, Physical characteristics with criminal Behavior in the past Mm. Like with the study of phrenology Like they look at the lumps and bumps and things On your head and try to determine Whether you're a criminal or not But in the Mm. book Anatomy of Violence uh, Rain talks about how um, Some of these Criminals have Like sloped foreheads And Mm. Where did I write it down? prominent yeah, brows. Yeah, there's certain Cheski
2: talked about that too.
1: Yeah. Certain physical characteristics that shouldn't be discounted in some cases.
2: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's I mean that can kind of lead to a slippery slope too where it's kind of like, well, round up all the people with sloped foreheads and uh, Yeah, and large
1: jaws shoulders. and a single palm crease. There's not really much huh. to go on. <laughs>
0: No. Yeah. Well, and yeah, I mean, class, I think that term uh phrenology, especially if you're talking to any like progressive folks, uh PC folks, it's they they see it as like a dog whistle for racism. Right? Mm-hmm. Because yeah. that was what was used as the impetus for a lot of racist acts throughout history. Mm-hmm. So it is, I mean, yeah. it is a slippery slope. It doesn't make it any less of a biological factor. It's just mm-hmm you know, it's just kind of plow forward and talk about it and just be a human being, you know, while you're talking about it, I get, yeah.
2: It's, um, it's, it's tricky because I mean, it, it, in in a way it does make sense. Like if we're saying that there might be a genetic component to this, then it would make sense that that genetic component would express itself in different ways. And they might have very physical kind of ramifications. Mm -hmm. Um, but, yeah, I, I think what I would imagine, and I mean, I'm not quoting a study or anything like that, but I would imagine that just because someone has a particular type of build doesn't necessarily mean that they are for sure going to be a criminal or a psychopath or whatever the case may be. Right. Um, so I think that <clears throat> you still probably need to take things, like, you know, if you, if you notice a certain physical characteristic that you've read about that can correlate with... Uh, um, psychopathy or criminal behavior or violence then maybe it's kind of something you want to keep in mind mm-hmm. but it's yeah i think it, i think it's something where you can't necessarily be like well i am absolutely 100 percent not going to have any contact with this person because they have a sloped forehead it's yeah. uh <laughs> or I everyone mean, you read, you look at their too. palms to see
4: if
1: they
2: have <laughs> yeah, exactly online. become a palm reader
1: and, and there are some people that will probably like, no. do that, too. <clears throat> yeah. Let me look at your palms. Yeah. Oh, you have more than one palm crease. I'm going to be your friend now.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I know you're a good person. <clears throat>
1: yeah.
0: So, uh, Tiff, you had mentioned, uh, you know, what are the actual differences. And one of the articles we were looking at, the neuroscience of psychopathy, actually mentions Adrian Raine. So uh, this book that we've been talking about, uh, The Anatomy of Violence by Adrian Raine is pretty good. It's available on uh, Amazon. And um, he did, Raine did a study in uh, 2010 uh, that took uh, MRI images of the brains around 90 individuals at risk for antisocial personality disorder and psychopathy. Uh, looking specifically for signs of a damaged or underdeveloped septum pellicidum, a structure in the limbic system of developing fetuses. Um, So it it says, uh, long story short, prenatal neural maldevelopment is associated with the presence of a a cavum septum pellicidum, a cavity uh, in this septum, and is suspect to result from exposing the fetus to alcohol. Uh, Rain hypothesized Hmm. and later confirmed via MRI that those who suffered from neurodevelopmental abnormalities in the limbic and septal structures were predisposed to psychopathy. Hmm. Hmm. So, but who knows if that could be, you know, a description across the board, because uh, I don't know if this condition contributes to other, you know, uh, mental or physical slash mental illnesses, because, um, you know, there are certainly plenty of uh, psychopaths and even essential psychopaths who are perfectly healthy, you know, and operate normally in the world.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, it, it's been stated a number of times, actually, and Rain even says it a number of times in the book, that um, despite the fact that there's kind of MRI, like it's differences in MRI scans, Um between kind of normal people versus, uh, psychopaths. Um, it's, it's kind of like there will never be just an MRI test. Like, you know, put everybody through an MRI test and, and then you'll know who the psychopaths are and who aren't. Yeah, Cause there's all, I, I mean, I imagine there's just a, a whole array of differences that you can see. And it's kind of like, it's almost more like a, a tendency. Like, didn't he even say at one point that his brain was kind of similar to that? Yeah, he
3: he conducted the... the same test on himself, just as kind mm. of a control, and that he did have similar brain abnormalities,
4: mm-hmm.
3: and did share mm. that you know because uh, I listened to an interview, it must have been on NPR or something with him, and he did say that he felt that he did not act out those tendencies because he mm. had like a good upbringing. So back to that, mm. you know, environment. Mm-hmm. But it was interesting when, as Tiffany was talking about, when he shares in the book about his being attacked, when they actually found the the attacker and it came time to sentence him, that he felt he should be eliminated, right? Mm-hmm. That he was, that there was this rage in him that, that there should be a, a serious um, penalty for that behavior.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, the house did probably like these brain changes. I mean, not all mothers drink when they're pregnant. I mean, there's fetal alcohol syndrome, definitely. And that can actually cause like uh, behavioral problems and, you know, uh, impulsive behaviors and risk taking behaviors and things like that. But
4: yeah,
1: are those kids necessarily psychopaths? I wouldn't say that they are. But even in mothers who don't drink, like, how do these brain changes occur? And is there really even any way to actually know? That's the whole thing. You can't know for sure in any of these cases.
0: Yeah. Well, and if we're going with the hypothesis that this is how things work, then it will always happen, right? So it's just like Mm -hmm. a a luck of the draw. A certain Mm -hmm. percentage of humans will be born this way.
1: Well, another thing that kind of lends credence to like differences in brain, uh, either function or formation is like normal people, mostly men who through like maybe war or sports injuries or car accidents or something, they end up with a traumatic brain injury and it completely changes their personality and their behavior. And some of them start behaving very right. badly
2: yeah yeah there was the example that rain gave of the guy who suffered head trauma
4: mm-hmm.
2: and like up until the time he suffered head trauma he was like good student very social like well liked and then he suffered this this head trauma i think like a crowbar fell on his head or something like that
4: mm-hmm.
2: and um he from there it's like all of a sudden he started this life of crime it's like he was in and out of prison constantly and all these other kinds of antisocial behaviors that he was engaged in after the fact. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like, uh, yeah, it's uh, kind of the creation of psychopathy there.
3: I think it also is important where the head trauma happens, right? Because it seems like a lot of the the information that we read is about deficits in the prefrontal cortex. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, that's where this guy suffered damage, actually.
3: It made me think about that saying, you know, uh, when somebody asks, "Oh, did that baby get dropped on its head?" Yeah,
1: yeah. Did your mother drop you Look. on your head when you were a baby?
2: But then there's also wondered. the where the the idea, like you know, we can't just necessarily say, "Okay, so it's a prefrontal cortex thing," because then Rain also brings up the the um, the one serial killer. Who was operating, I think, in the 70s, and he was like basically he was picking up hitchhikers, like men, and you know doing all these horrific like torture and raping them and doing all kinds of absolutely horrific things to them. And his brain scan actually showed a perfectly functional prefrontal cortex, and in fact it was quite active because, and they were making the, the differentiation there between someone who is kind of impulsive. And acts in violence like on, you know, when the situation is kind of in a certain way versus somebody who is much more methodical and planning and, um, you know, just very kind of creepy and like, yeah, methodical about it, mm-hmm. um, because that actually requires somebody who, who has a very um, a functional prefrontal cortex, like they're not just kind of acting on the on the fly. They're they're thinking about it. They're planning. They have a strategy. So those kinds of things, uh, you know. So again, we can't just like look at it and say, well, it's a prefrontal cortex thing. Yeah, maybe that obviously.
1: Sorry. Maybe that's what makes the difference between a successful and an unsuccessful psychopath. Like an unsuccessful one might end up in prison for the rest of his life, and maybe a successful one will be, a, you know, mover and shaker on Wall Street. <laughs> Yeah.
3: And with lack of knowledge, the general populace wouldn't be able to tell. Mm -mm.
0: Yeah, well, obviously, not all the psychopaths are just, uh, you know, blundering ogres. (laughs) Uh, Mm. You know, they, or I've, because I know that there's some debate around whether or not they can, like, plan long term. Mm -hmm. But I have to think that some of that exists because they'd certainly uh, execute, you know, manipulations. Of people which mm-hmm. requires planning
1: mm-hmm. yeah. Is Elliot there He said something interesting in the chat I
0: think Yeah so we were having some tech issues oh. <laughs> Let's see if so he's Elliot- going
1: to say anything <laughs> He might be on mute <laughs>
0: Yeah mm-hmm. Oh no, connection. Okay, he can't get on. Too bad.
4: Okay.
0: <clears throat> so, yeah, one of our chatters brought up something interesting here that the prefrontal damage is correlated with reactive, aggressive types uh, in parentheses non psychopaths and unsuccessful psychos who can't regulate their behavior. Mm. Yeah. So the damage seems to be more associated, right, with uh, with that blundering kind of uh, personality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I wonder what the, uh, what do you guys, so there's that term and I've said it a couple of times, but essential psychopath, which I think when you're talking about a successful psychopath, we mean the same thing. What do you guys mm-hmm. think is the percentage of that? Because we hear bandied around, you know, for for psychopaths in general, like 6%, five anywhere from 5 to 10%. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, a lot of uh, experts seem to say it's like one percent, but then in prison populations, it tends to be higher. So but I don't know. I think everybody's kind of just given it their guess, best guess um, because it is something that's very difficult to to actually detect. So kind of like unless they're just that sort of out there self-reporting. Right. I think it's, <laughs> uh, it, I think it's always going to be kind of a mystery.
1: Well, there have been several studies about, uh, well, they studied the, the brains of prisoners. So these are psychopaths in prison. And they found that they have significantly smaller amounts of gray matter in their brain regions that are associated with uh, processing empathy, uh, moral reasoning, and uh, emotions such as guilt and embarrassment. So we all know through study in psychopathy that they have very, well, pretty much no empathy and really can't feel guilt or embarrassment about anything. So that kind of makes sense there. But there's also something called the a warrior gene. And there's an enzyme, well, there's a compound called MAOA which produces this enzyme that breaks down serotonin and it can calm you down. But um, these people that have this gene, um, they can't regulate their levels of serotonin. So basically they can't calm themselves down. They're always yeah. hyper alert or hyper arousal, hyper aroused. And this can lead to higher levels of violence.
3: Well, that made me think about this whole thing with SSRIs and suicidality and the violence Mm -hmm. side effect. Mm -hmm. Like when people are taking those serotonin reuptake inhibitors or whatever, that one of the side effects is being violent.
1: Mm -hmm. So I wonder if that's... Or have an erratic behavior. Tell your doctor if you start
0: experiencing
1: (laughs) these symptoms... (laughs)
0: Violent bloody rage. Yeah. One thing that's interesting too about this, I think from a societal perspective is the glamorization of psychopathy Mm -hmm. where Mm -hmm. normal people, like if you were to actually encounter and be damaged by a psychopath in your daily life, you'd be horrified. You'd be damaged, you know, uh, depending on the severity of the encounter, of course, but um, it's not, you know, it's not what it's, portrayed to be, but then we have movies like Seven Psychopaths. I don't know if you guys saw that one. Um but pick pretty much any of like the top kind of like crime thriller movies. Um a lot of the the protagonists also have psychopathic tendencies. But granted in good writing you have that good and evil kind of struggle. But there's also a glamorization of the cold calculating, you know, like James Bond type character. Mm. Um Mm.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
4: So
0: there I a book
2: actually... oh, oh, go ahead, please. Well, I was, was going to say there was a book that came out a while ago called The Wisdom of Psychopaths. Mm. And it was, uh, I'm forgetting the author's name off the top of my head, but he was basically saying that, you know, these psychopathic traits, you know, not letting your emotions get in the way and be able to be cold and calculating. And when the situation demands it, then that's actually a good thing. So we could learn a lot from, from psychopaths and in certain conditions being a psychopath would actually be an advantage. Um, so yeah, I think, I think there is kind of a, a certain level of, of glorification there. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, yeah, well, I, I feel that myself sometimes too. I wish I could have more uh, confidence, right? Or in mm-hmm. like business situations where you're required to be a little bit calculating, like I wish I was a little bit more comfortable with that. You know, that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but those are not, you know, that's not saying I, I wish I were a psychopath. Those are just <laughs> character traits. Uh, but yeah, you oh, do have that, I think. It, it was,
2: I was just going to say, one of the, the chatters said it was Kevin Dutton. That was the
0: name uh, of the author. Yeah. Well, I do have, I think that you have this thing, and we see it in, uh, you know, the writings of, uh, Lobachevsky where he talks about the term ponerology and the idea that or ponerogenesis, right the idea that the psychopathic attitudes kind of trickle down throughout society I think we can definitely mm-hmm. say that we're seeing that happen now but not just in the way that we operate like as say the United States as a nation or people as a as a culture um, <clears throat> but it's also how do i say this like it's worming its way into our into our minds you know deeply to the point where highly lucrative you know uh films and tv shows are about characters who are psychopaths that we're fascinated by it's um, just
1: normalizing behavior
0: right yeah
1: but they call it creating a very complex character <laughs>
0: yeah <laughs> Well, and then you discover that people actually are that way. Like, mm-hmm. you know, Kevin Spacey's character in House of Cards—it comes out that he's a predator, and everybody's mm-hmm. like, "Holy shit, that's real!" You know?
2: Yeah, that's kind yeah. of a crazy thing, actually, because he's—and also even the the ties to kind of pedophilia there. I mean, in that movie, um, American Beauty, he mm-hmm. kind of yeah. played somebody who was kind of lusting after a, a young girl. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's really kind of weird parallel to reality
0: he's, there. Well, he's actually very often played uh, sort of psychopathic characters. I find that a really mm-hmm. interesting uh, point about a lot of different actors and actresses. When you look at the roles that they play, there are some who lean more towards those types of roles. There's a terrifying mm-hmm. movie, Kevin Spacey movie, where he was like a... Like a business manager i forget you know real estate or banking uh, or something and he drove a an employee to a psychotic break to where the employee that tortured yeah. him because of that yeah mm-hmm. swimming yeah. with sharks yes yeah that was a yeah. scary movie
2: it's very it's scary like, it, it's it's yeah. really good but at the same time like very disturbing yeah
1: well in hollywood a lot of these psychopathic performances are lauded <laughs> and they'll win oscars for that Like, say, for instance, Denzel Washington, he did all that great work and Malcolm X didn't get an Oscar nomination, Mm -hmm. I don't think. And then when he was in Training Day and played that psychopathic cop, he won an Oscar. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It almost Uh, seems like so
3: strange for him to actually play a role like that because Mm -hmm. that's not normally the kinds of roles that he plays in movies. Yeah, and with uh, Mm -hmm.
1: Anthony Hopkins, too, after he played Hannibal Lecter, his star power shot up big
0: time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. Well, like, uh, what was the movie? The Daniel Day-Lewis movie, There Will Be Blood. That mm-hmm. that was highly lauded. You know, and that character was an absolute psychopath. Absolutely. I don't know if anybody saw the film, but, I mean, it's not yeah. even a question, like a debate about it. He was portrayed that way. But, <clears throat> you know, that's you see a lot of that in that era, too, like the uh, turn of the century, late 1800s, early 1900s uh, mostly men, you know, that were rising in the industry, in the industrial revolution. Um, a lot of psychopathy taking over. Mm. Yeah. But yeah. Um, of course we could talk about psychopathy all day long. Uh, excuse me with clearing my throat. I got a scratchy throat today. Uh, but yeah, I think that the, uh, the the topic that we're discussing is particularly interesting because we see a rise in uh, violent behavior. I guess to distill what I'm saying, I'm curious more about violence than crime, because mm. if you take the criminal aspect out of it and just look at violence, uh, you have to include police, too. And you see a lot of that happening, I think. Um, and. Yeah you know, whether or not like the percentage is higher of psychopaths in uh, police forces. I, guess, I don't know if that's debatable or not. It seems like it would be.
2: Yeah. Well, it kind of, it makes sense in a certain sense because, um, you know, they one of the characteristics that's often talked about with psychopaths is that they uh, tend to be drawn to positions of power. So you can see like, you know, there is the idea that, you know, our um, all the world leaders, not all of them, but, a lot of world leaders um, are actually psychopaths because they have that draw to power and being able to hold power over people. But you can imagine that the ones who kind of aren't that smart and aren't that kind of able to manipulate their way into these higher positions of power, becoming a cop is kind of like the, the kind of the lower end of the spectrum, like as far as um, ability is concerned. So I could see that maybe your less successful psychopaths might be drawn to that. And maybe would only be drawn to that because they only want to be able to hold power over people in so far as it's kind of like physical power or um you know being able to use brute force being able to unload your weapon on somebody's dog or um a racial minority or whatever the case may be um i can see how it yeah i, I can see how it would kind of draw more of that kind of consciousless individual into into that sphere
0: yeah yeah, and that's the dichotomy of the uh, position that they hold, you know, allegedly to serve and protect, but the existence of the police force is based on a threat of violence if you don't conform to a set of laws. You know, that's the whole issue that uh, anarchists have, uh, is that, you know, there there are no innocuous laws. Every law that's on the book is a threat of violence if you don't conform. Um, <clears throat> because if you escalate, you know, let's say re- you refuse to do X, like pay a ticket. Well, then there's a warrant off your arrest and the police come to your house and you refuse to go with them. Then it escalates. And at some point they're going to exert force to mm-hmm. force you to comply with the law. So, um, yeah, that's the, the dichotomy of the, uh, we see them as protectors. Um, you know, when in reality their position was established, uh, to enforce law through violence. So, mm-hmm. uh, it really is kind of like a uh, messes with your head. You know, it's like a, a society wide cognitive dissonance.
1: Yeah. And it's not even necessarily through physical violence that they got you. Right. Uh, it's the taking away your resources mm-hmm. or locking you in prison. Which
3: is like college for
1: criminals.
0: <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> well, I think that was like, that's, that's the point, right. Is to get to mm-hmm. prison they have to threaten violence like yeah. if you don't comply mm-hmm. it all comes down yeah. to that so you would want i mean if you if that being the construct you would want police who are not going to second guess their orders mm-hmm. you know every mm-hmm. time they have to arrest someone uh, it's also mm-hmm. tricky because there are a lot of cops who are good and put themselves in dangerous situations for the benefit of people with an actual impulse to help. So that muddies the water even further because here you have right alongside with, you know, the angels of our society, the demons as well, right in the same uniform. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's kind of funny because I was just reading an article recently about um, police uh, in France and apparently the suicide rate among police in France is kind of like escalating a lot. And, it's it's interesting because i was kind of like it made me think that maybe you know the, a lot of the the stuff in in france right now with uh, you know the state of emergency and all it's not called the state of emergency but it's something something else along those lines basically they're on terror alert all the time and you hear all these stories about um them forcibly um getting migrants out of the country and things like that i, I just i wonder if a normal person with a conscience is kind of seeing like, you know, the it's like the enforcing of the police state is, is wearing on them, you know, and it's kind of getting to a point where a lot of them are kind of breaking and they can't kind of deal with this anymore. It's, it's, you know, seeing their fellow officers doing things that they shouldn't be doing as far as like pepper spraying and beating people. And even, I, I don't know if there's been much in their shootings in France, but uh, I can see how like, anybody who who is kind of a normal functioning individual and is actually looking to help, you know, they have altruistic tendencies to be put into a situation where they're, they're forced to just strong arm, you know, it's, it's the same thing with, uh, with veterans of -hmm. of wars, like the, the high suicide rate there. It's kind of Mm -hmm. like, it's it's, not even suicide,
1: but just PTSD in general.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: They might not go as far as to kill themselves, but they just can't deal with it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Yeah, and there's a lot of police, well, I guess I don't know about a lot, what you count as being a lot. That was actually a a misnomer because I can think of two particularly stories of police who have come out, you know, uh, specifically to expose either abuse of power within the department or, you know, against suspects and stuff like that. And they've been harassed and even murdered, you know. So it's like um, not only is the the culture set up uh, for them to be part of the the brotherhood and to kind of keep their mouth shut, but there are real consequences for that. It's not just like your life might be kind of hard. It's like your life will be destroyed or you might even be killed if you speak Mm -hmm. out in those those realms. So, yeah, even cops who are, you know, good people per se – when they get into situations where like the, they're, you know, stretching the law or outright breaking it, uh, they're not going to say much. Mm. Yeah. So that's an interesting problem, but you know, uh, trying to, uh, trying to affect some kind of study of psychopathy within law enforcement, I think would be pretty hard. It'd be hard to get funding for that. Yeah.
2: We should talk to Adrian rain about it.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: So i getting back to smart genes or selfish genes whose only goal is to propagate the species. I mean, this conversation really makes me think about why certain traits are attractive to women. Like if you mm-hmm. look at these uh, gangster movies or men in positions of power, they have all these women around them all the time. Like, w- mm-hmm. Whether they're married or not, they might be married and they have like two or three girlfriends on the side or whatever. And I think I read somewhere that these men who have these traits, whether they're genetic psychopaths or not, they actually have more children than mm-hmm. men who don't have these traits. So it just mm-hmm. kind of strikes me as funny, but not haha funny that once <laughs> again, genes are winning out.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that- it's kind of like, the, the the like violence gets the chicks. That's kind of mm-hmm. what it seems like. Like there's yeah. a whole phenomenon of, um, you know, women writing to like serial killers in prisons and stuff like that because mm-hmm. they kind of want to hook up. And I mean, it's it's a thing. It's kind of like you know the guy who wins the bar brawl goes home with the girl. Mm-hmm. It's uh, yeah, it's kind of a kind of an odd thing. But I guess yeah, it well, kind yeah. of comes down to like you know the the, the a, a woman. You know, on a genetic level, is probably looking to a man to be someone who, you know, is is the most strong and capable and the best protector, whether he feels it or not. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. It's like somebody who who can can get by by force um, is a good provider Mm -hmm. on some level.
0: Yeah. Or a lot of women who find themselves in that situation say they were charmed by a man and didn't realize he was abusive. Uh, and then they're afraid mm-hmm. to get out because they'll be punished for that. You know, mm-hmm. like, I can't leave or kill me or, or kids, God forbid, you know, there's kids in the picture and then the man will threaten the children for the women to stay.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Doug. And you brought up uh, a point in the book, anatomy of violence about men who rape their wives mm-hmm. and the genetic reason behind that. Like, yeah. The man is threatened, not just him as himself, but on a genetic level, his genes are threatened because he does not want to be stuck in a position where he has to provide for another man's child. So his raping her is a way for his genes to kind of get rid of the competition.
2: Well, yeah, it's in a situation where there's cheating suspected. Yeah, He suspects that his wife has been cheating it's mm-hmm. kind of uh apparently like what what uh, rain was saying is that the what drives them um is often jealousy so it's kind of like the the man suspects his wife of cheating and then that ends up in in a rape and it's like you know there might be any number of narratives running there like most people think that it's kind of like a way of punishing you know mm-hmm. punishing indiscretions and you know on on some level it might be um, but it's kind of like there is actually a genetic strategy towards that because the the sperm um, once you know once more than one sperm from more than one uh, male in a female mm-hmm. uh, will actually fight each other so it's kind of like his way of trying to ensure that he that his progeny will win out over this strange man's so it's kind of crazy to think about it
1: well that happens in the animal kingdom too Like with some mm-hmm. ape Apes The the male will have sex with the female And then he'll like plug something up Into her vagina so even if she does Go and have sex with another Ape then her chances of getting pregnant By that other ape are lower Because of the plug Jeez. that he gave her
0: Well I didn't know that
1: Yeah <clears throat> I read about that a That's long time crazy. ago. I thought that was just like bizarre, <laughs> and I can't remember what they made the plug out of. Or
0: there, yeah. conversely, on the other side of things, you know that uh, female ducks have dead ends in their in their sexual organs, so that if they so choose, they can redirect a male so that they won't be fertilized.
2: Hmm. So oh, they can yeah. they can essentially that.
0: choose whether or not to be impregnated. that's handy. Yeah, (laughs) right.
2: (laughs) Well, it's interesting, too, because Rain was talking about how when it comes to infidelity, apparently men are more distressed by the idea of their woman having sex with another man, Mm -hmm. whereas women tend to be more concerned about a more of like an emotional infidelity. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the man being kind of more emotionally satisfied by a woman. And it's it's interesting to look at that on kind of a genetic level, because, you know, for a man, it's like if his woman has sex with another man, then she might get pregnant. And then, you know, he's wasting his resources getting, um, you know, another man's genetics out into the world versus a woman is looking more for once she has kind of conceived um, that she's going to be taken care of and that the man's going to be around to kind of provide and um, you know, give resources to the raising of that child and getting their genetics out into the world. So it's kind of like a woman's kind of being um, is more concerned about kind of being left. You know, if, she, if, if the man's getting his emotional satisfaction from another woman, then he might leave. Mm-hmm. Versus a man, it's like, I don't want to raise some other guy's son mm-hmm. or daughter.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Man. Well,
1: <clears throat> since we can't, figure out who's going to become a psychopath or even who is a psychopath currently, what can we do?
0: <laughs> well, I think one of the keys is, is watching for it in your personal life, basically and avoiding interactions with suspect people. So if mm-hmm. you start to see, you know, you don't need to go around diagnosing people, but in your day-to-day interactions, if, if you've made a new friend or a business acquaintance or whatever, and you can see, um, these traits popping up basically I would just cut and run and involve yourself with different people
2: Mm
0: -hmm. you know
2: I think networking comes into it as well yeah if you're talking to other people about things and you're sharing information then it's much more likely that you're going to be able to to connect some dots because you might have seen one incident but on its own it doesn't really say anything but if you connect that with a bunch of other incidents that other people have witnessed then suddenly you've got a, a bigger picture and you can kind of maybe Determine what exactly is going on.
0: Yeah, I think that's where, you know, because people are hesitant to gossip about other people. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, there are cases, I think, where it's, you might call it gossip, but it's relevant in cases Mm -hmm. where, like, there's manipulation at play or, you know, lying, things like that, deception. um, Mm -hmm. That it's reasonable to network about that. You're not just Mm -hmm. gossiping. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. But even from a a parent's perspective, say that there's a woman who for some reason or another had a child with a guy who has criminal tendencies. She shouldn't just throw up her hands. I mean, genetics aren't necessarily destiny. I mean, sociological factors and biological factors both play a part. So, As parents, uh, it's the duty of the parent to maximize the sociological factors and be the best parent that they can be and expose their children to the best influences possible. And then the rest, I mean, is just up to nature. You don't think they should cut and run? (laughs) I'm
4: (laughs) I'm
1: just talking about just in general. Like if their kid is... Showing signs okay. and, yeah, pulling some professional help. But yeah, just with kids in general, give them the best mm-hmm. socialization that they can possibly have. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, and also parents mm-hmm. being aware that there's yeah. even a possibility. Mm-hmm.
1: And I think being aware of that, like within yourself, like on, on an individual basis, mm-hmm. like the more knowledge and the more awareness you have. About reality and about brain function and psychology and all that can only help you.
0: hmm Yeah, knowledge is power, right?
1: hmm
0: Yeah. Read your Marine's book.
3: Do
2: you know how many yeah, programs? and also yeah, the, 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 the
3: Sandra Brown's "Women Who Love Psychopaths," mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. not just for women. Yeah.
4: Um, well, she's got, got
2: a had, version too.
3: Yeah, and how to spot a dangerous man. I mean,
2: yeah, when, when
3: our had daughters had called, were dating, uh, that was required reading before they could go out on a date. <laughs> uh, Just because it's like learning how to recognize those red flags, mm-hmm. even if they turn out to not be you know, a full-blown psychopath, at least recognizing when your body is giving you a signal that something's not right. Yeah. You were saying, Doug. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh
2: yeah, no, I kept on cutting you off. I apologize. No, I was just going to say she does actually have a version that's for men. It's called How to Avoid. I think it's called How to Avoid Dating Dangerous Women. Mm. But um, it, it's along similar lines. It's just kind of more aimed at men.
1: Well,
3: another um, another good book too is that rapist, sadists, and pedophiles. I can't mm-hmm. remember the and name
1: and assaulter.
3: Yes. Mm. So I read that when my children were young and I, unfortunately it was at the soccer field and it probably wasn't the best place to be reading that book, but <laughs> a parent did ask me and I sh- naively responded with what I was reading and the, their face got all squinched up and they said, well, why would you want to read something like that? And it just came out. I want to know, mm-hmm. I want to know what I'm dealing mm-hmm. with, mm-hmm. Yeah. you know, so I'm prepared. So, if my child goes to someone's house and I don't have a good feeling about it that I can feel okay saying, yeah, I think we'll not be coming to your house today. Mm -hmm. Just, and I remember at the time I felt like, Oh, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. And then I I doubled down. No, Mm. I'm, it it could only help to know. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I think that's a good, uh, closing statement let's um, we're coming up on our time so let's go to Zoya's uh, pet health segment for today and we will uh, wrap up when we come back hello and welcome to pet health segment of the health and wellness show my name is Zoya and today I'm going to share with you a recording by Jackson Galaxy, famous cat whisperer, where he's going to explain to you how to pet your cat without getting scratched or bitten. Apparently, there's an explanation for their
3: duplicitous behavior, and it even involves electricity. Yep,
1: so listen up and have a great
5: We are here to talk about why your cat beats you up. Now, let's go get catified! Today, we, we are in the land of the supermarket question. supermarket question is, Jackson, i got this cat, he's really, really cool, and, and every time we're sitting together, out of the blue, randomly, he attacks me. Of course, it's never out of the blue. It's, it's always because of something. And secondly, yes, you may have bites and scratches on you, but is that an attack? Most times, when folks are sitting here just like me and him, we're just sitting around, we're not doing much of anything... Good P.C. Good P.C. Oh, I love P.C. Look at this. Look at this. Bye, P.C. See ya, P.C. Right? And gone. Why is that? Petting-induced overstimulation aggression. And what happens there is that certain cats, and this is physiological, this is not a matter of temperament, cannot take being pet like this over and over and over again. It actually fills them with a, a sort of static... Like a balloon, filth, filth, and then bang. You don't realize when you're sitting watching TV with your cat how you're petting them. So what is the cure for this? All right, let's look at number one. Be observant. Know when your cat is getting worked up. As you're petting, you're going to notice the tail start to twitch just a little. And then that graduates. And then it starts going like this. And then you are going to get bit. Then there's what I call back electricity right down the back it's a cat going Whoa. in terms of stimulation you're just getting to that point it's up to you to notice these things and and if you notice that the, the, the aggression is not going to happen know where your cat enjoys being pet and for how long I'm going to demonstrate with valoria the opposite of the full body pet laureate here, 23 years old, the fun. So now watch, out comes the finger. You see how she guides me. Here's the finger. Look at that. See how she guides me? This is a technique I wish I had a better name for it. Right now I call it the finger nose. I present my finger like a nose to the cat. The idea is to let them pet you. Overstimulation happens constantly with cats because They are this direct channel for energy, and proactivity is key, folks. You've got to play with your cats. You've got to get that energy out on a regular basis. So then when they're sitting on your lap, that balloon is not filled to 90%. So all it takes is five pets, and kaboom, they blow. Again, remember, you are in control of putting air in the cat balloon. Let that air out as the day goes on. Don't keep putting air into it, and don't be surprised when the balloon pops. From now on, when it does happen to you, I know this is really hard, pull yourself emotionally out of that moment and say, what just happened here? When you understand that part of things, you're going to stop blaming the cat for doing things to you. All right, folks, you can find me pretty much anywhere. If you want to find me, hashtag Team Cat Mojo, hashtag My Cat From Hell, uh, hashtag Team Anna Mojo, you'll see a lot of these hashtags, just hashtag. Uh, you know I'm still looking for more cats and dogs watching my cat from hell so if you just hashtag cats watching MCFH or hashtag dogs watching MCFH we'll all have a lot of fun doing that and also send me in examples of what you've done to your house to environmentally enrich that place. Hashtag catification uh, and be on the lookout for that book, Catification, with my co author Kate Benjamin coming out in October. Couldn't be more psyched for that one. Alright, folks, until next time, all light, all love, and all mojo to you. Love you. I'm just misunderstood.
0: <laughs>
5: just misunderstood. <laughs> yeah.
0: There's no air in those goat balloons.
4: <laughs> <coughs>
0: they are well, well, pet, taken care of.
4: <laughs>
0: All right. Well, on that positive note, uh, let us end today's show. Um, just want to say thank you to everybody for tuning in and to the chat participants we had a pretty busy chat today so it's cool to see Uh, be sure to tune into the SOT radio show on Sunday at noon eastern time uh, radio.sot.net and we will be back next week thanks everybody
1: see you everybody bye everybody (laughs) (laughs) HURPS! <laughs> <laughs>